You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Simon. Hey, Mark. Hello. All right. Welcome back. Um, Before we get into it, we didn't have any emails this week, so I've made one up. These two are looking at me completely blankly. Only as much as isn't that what you do every week. Very funny. I didn't make one up. What I did is, oh, some replies from David Kitchen after his email from last week's show. New Tory... Oh, he's not new, is he? But That's our new Tory new, advisor. Newly revealed as Tory advisor, yeah. Well, he actually works in politics in Australia. Oh, yeah. Politics in Australia is a little bit different than over here, though. Hmm. I, I think. Not having lived there, I don't suppose I'd know. Anyway, but last week we talked about... Um, oh, he wrote us an email saying about the um, lack of a payoff to the Time Lord Victorious thing. Yeah. Remember when we talked yeah. about that? And so I wrote to him back and I said that, um, oh, I said about not paying off the arc, that that was just one of many of Russell T. Davis's missed tricks, really. Mm-hmm. He seemed to throw out ideas left, right and centre. In fact, as we said last week on the podcast, I wouldn't necessarily always pick them up. Anyway, David got back in touch. He said, good morning, JR. Thanks for the comments. Oh, hang on. Good morning. No, hang on. Australian accent. Mark, do you want to do it? Um, no. I'll leave it to the experts. Go on, JR. I'll just do it in English then, shall I? Oh. He said, good morning, JR. Thanks for the comments. Of course, it's, it's evening as we're recording this, but it's morning there, isn't it? It's probably the middle of the night. Oh. I don't know. How far ahead of us are they, Mark? I don't know. Since it's you brought hours. it up. About 12 hours. Is it 12? I don't know. Something like that. I always assume it's half a day. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably mm. something in that region. Roughly speaking. Thanks for the comments. Can't disagree with any of that. But then, isn't that just the RTD style writ large? He's always seemed to me someone that is less bothered about the details of a beginning, middle, end that all string together than he is about people just enjoying the moments and the tale he's telling. The anti-plastic in Rose, for example, is, let's face it, a cheap plot device to wrap the story up. But it doesn't matter because the engaged audience has had a good tale introducing us to Rose and the casual audience got to see lots of Autons doing cool stuff. End of the world has the even more ridiculous Jedi moment of the Doctor walking through the fans. (laughs) But again, it doesn't matter because the story is about Rose realising she's billions of years in the future with some bloke she realises she knows nothing about and us learning how damaged the Doctor is post-war with lots of cool aliens and Zoe Wanamaker as a comedy skin thing. And that the clock is still ticking in San Dimas. In where? It's in like Bill and Bill, Ted. It's like in Ted. Bill and Ted, that when they go off travelling around on the time travel, the clock is always ticking back where they come from. I know it's not quite the same, but it, it's that new RTD thing, which I think is quite important. That 
Which comes to a head of the start of Aliens in London. Exactly, they're not there, yeah. 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 San what? San Dimas. It is San Dimas, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Right. Okay. You must have seen Bill and Ted. No. Oh, JR. But is Bill and Ted any good? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Mm. Do you know what? If you like idio, idio, idiocracy, I can never say it probably in one go. Um, idio, idio, uh, idiocracy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sounds like a rap song. It, it sounds like a Eurovision entry. Um, it, uh, if you like idio, idio, idiocracy. Wow. That's it's just like, like the new a... Will I Am. <laughs> new... It's Vanilla more like Ice. Will I Was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. No, if you enjoyed that, I think you'd probably like Bill and Ted. I mean, it's not. it hasn't got the social comment in the same thing. It's a bit Bill and Ted's one of those things I've always meant to catch up with and just never have. I think you'll like the historical mm. aspects. I think it's really good. One day... I guarantee you'll watch it. And especially Socrates. Socrates is the oh, best yeah. thing in it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Socrates. Yeah. yeah. Did he... Wasn't that Plato's boyfriend? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Even parting of the ways really has nothing to do with the bad wolf thing, which doesn't actually have any bearing on the plot. The reason Rose opened the TARDIS console was because she saw it in the previous episode, not because of the bad wolf clues. But the episode is about the Doctor healing, and when faced with the I can wipe out the bad guys, but I have to wipe out his good guys as well moment, this time he chooses not to. Plus lots of cool scenes of thousands of Daleks exterminating everyone. Most of RTD's plots don't end well, but I doubt he'd care. Much like a Broadway musical, it doesn't matter that the plot is all sorted out with a few quick lines as long as you've enjoyed the show-stopping songs on the way. But when you hire RTD, you know what you're getting. Queer as Folk had many wonderfully written episodes and great characters, but the series finale is utter nonsense. RTD has no way of resolving the situations he's got his characters into. Actually, Queer as Folk 2 has got an even more ridiculous really? ending. Have you seen Queer as Folk 2? No. Have you? No. Right, at the end of Queer as Folk 2, because Ross T. Davis didn't know how to finish it, he had the four main characters climbing into a car, and then they turned the engine off, and the car lifted off the ground and flew off into outer space. <laughs> I remember seeing that. Now you've said that, I thought I dreamt that. <laughs> nope, that's how he ended it. Unbelievable. Is, though, from what I can remember reading the writer's tale, most of his writing was done at 3am in the morning when he run out of time and he had to get something on paper. Or... Yeah, but I don't think that's... See, everybody focuses on that. Mm. But I think that's the less important thing because if you're writing and you know... If you're a writer who writes a lot of stuff mm. and has been doing it for a number of years, you'll know that 3am on the deadline day could be the most productive time as long as... You've spent mm. the weeks and months beforehand I'm sorting it out in your head. No, no, no. This is no. The it. point I'm making is not that he saves it all up to the end, mm. but that he doesn't sort it out in his head first. Mm. If you know well, that point you made on last week's episode about the um, the macro, how that could have been tied in really neatly with the, the original macro story, and it didn't quite yeah occur to him. See, if he'd have been doing that at 3am on the last day and he's not thought about it beforehand, mm. he just writes in those lines about the macro devolving. Yeah. But if he's thought about it beforehand, if he's given it any thought whatsoever, he'll think, oh, wow, actually, that fits in it's with the macro. It's not much term. of a leap, either, really, when you... Well, no! 
Exactly. That was my whole point about me recognising that it was the macro from the write-up in Doctor Who magazine. <laughs> because it wasn't a great leap. It was an easy leap to make. Yeah, yeah. Bless him. Yeah. Anyway. They, they uh, still joke about him coming back and doing an episode for Stephen Moffat, don't they? I'd love... Yeah, well, Stephen Moffat does in the production notes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd love to see back. it. Yeah, I would. I think Russell T. Davis, probably one of the reasons why he doesn't think about this stuff enough, didn't think these through enough, was because he's got a million other things going on. Yeah. Do you know my hunch is that in the same way as you get episodes like Blink in the RTD era, if you reverse the situation, you'd end up with episodes like Midnight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Nuggets. That's what I'm saying. Without all the other stuff he's got to think about, he might come back and write stuff like that. Mm. It'd be great. Mm. I'm not sure he's that kind of a writer, though, because you look at his career. In the last 15 years, has he written odd episodes of anything for anybody? Yeah, that's true. He likes to be in control, doesn't he? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fair enough. There's a, there's a certain element of Cecil B. DeMille to him, isn't there? Mm. Certainly with his... Mm. Big production numbers. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, David says, I also think that The Second Coming is a great drama with some very thoughtful ideas, but I've also always thought that the ending was a cop-out from a writer that has a great story in his mind, but no idea how to end it. And I'd slightly disagree with that, because I like the ending of The Second Coming. I've never seen it. Have you not? No. You either? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I only watched Doctor Who. Do you know, Lee's not here, which is a bit... Unfortunate because this doing the comedy voices. refers to Lee, but I think it was Second Coming. I gave something to Lee. It may have been Second Coming, it may have been something else. Some virus. No, it was State of Play. I oh, lent yeah. Lee State of that. Play. Yeah. It's very good. And I said to him, This is brilliant. And he borrowed it over a weekend or something, gave it me back on the Monday, and said, I liked it, but not the ending. I thought the ending was rubbish. And I said to him, Okay. Sit on that thought, and I'll come back next Monday, and we'll see what you think about the ending then. Yeah. And I came back a week later, so the first time was like 15 hours after he'd finished watching it, mm-hmm. and the second was 183 hours after he'd finished Had watching it. Had he forgotten it. that you'd lent it to him? Yeah. Right, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> this golfish Sorry, Lee. Love you. But the point is... After a whole week to think about it, mm. because state of play is one of those things that you yeah. don't stop thinking about, yeah. and you realise that that ending is the only ending it could have had, and the ramifications of that ending are mm. what make it so brilliant. It's got a low-key ending, yeah. but it's what happens afterwards mm-hmm. in your mind that yeah. makes it so good. Mm-hmm. So given a week to think about it, you suddenly realised, I think it's the same with the second coming. I think it's got this really odd low-key ending. I don't know why I'm looking at you two when I'm saying this. <laughs> it's got this really odd, low-key ending. <clears throat> that I think in the same way as as uh, State of Play, once you immediately finish watching it, you think, all right, is that it? But actually, give it a few days, let it percolate in your mind, mm. and it's one of those endings where you go, right, I right, see. Yeah, of course that's why it ended like that, yeah. Mm. But exactly. keeping within genre of uh, Children of Earth. Oh, it's got a horrible ending. Mm. It's horrible, but it's spot on. Yeah, I guess I so. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's hands down the best Torchwood series by a country mile. Mm. Exactly. It's not, it's not exactly difficult. But, yeah. 
Anyway, Davis also says the exception is his recent Cucumber series, which has a brilliant ending in every sense, and I'm certain watching it that in this case he had the ending in mind first and worked towards it. Which doesn't sound like Russell T. Davis. <laughs> <clears throat> and perhaps that's why. He says, as for Stephen Moffat, I can only speak for myself. I have no problem with pop I have no problems with plot points taking seasons to be resolved. Indeed, I have no problem with arcs. I'm just not a fan of a lot of the individual stories and recurring characters in his era. And whilst I could write at length about why, and indeed a year or so back, did write in depth for the local fanzine on that topic, really explaining why a piece of TV doesn't work for you is sometimes like trying to say why you like or dislike a sport or a colour. You just do. Smith's era had a tone that didn't work for me. So be it. Although I did prefer his doctor to David Tennant's. <clears throat> that said, though, I'm still not sure what happened at the end of Series 5 and whether or not Rory is still an Auton. Which I think is a conversation for another time. Mm. Uh, and I wrote back to him and basically just said that the Deus Ex Machina endings yeah. at the end of a lot of Russell T. Davis's stories, because, again, as we discussed last week, often his endings would make a lot of sense for the characters but not in rational plot terms. Within the narrative. Yeah. yeah, I said that by about series three, I was getting tired of that. And by, I didn't mind it at all in series one mm. because the story of Rose yeah. and the Ninth Doctor was so strong that it didn't matter that the individual episodes kind of copped out at the end. Mm. I said, but by the time we got to series three, I was starting to get a bit tired of it. And by the time we got to the specials, I just couldn't wait for him to move on. And David wrote back and said, I agree with what you say about deus ex fatigue at the end, especially when combined with David Tennant getting a bit out of control. However, what I think your present mini-series of revisitation episodes proves is that when you're not watching them all one after the other, you notice that far, far less and enjoy the stories on their own merit mm. a lot more. Okay. Which is a brilliant point. Mm -hmm. He says, I certainly enjoy a lot of RTD now, far more than I did at the time. Not that I didn't mostly enjoy them at the time anyway. Although the ones I still struggle with are episodes like The Age of Steel, which in my opinion misses a trick with the Cybermen and ends in a massive deus ex machina. And then he says, and on a different note, Rob and Mark from 42 to Doomsday say hi. Uh, hello. Hello. Mm. Hey, Mark's a dude. He keeps sending me music. So does he? Yeah. Keeps giving me, sending me illegal file sharing sort of thing. No, no, he sort of sends me links to stuff. <laughs> but no, uh, hits that were things were hits in Australia, but not over here. So you hear kind of the flip side of the eighties, eighties stuff. Anyway, going back to that, mm. that was my exact my experience of the eighties. Pretty much hated it from start to finish, and it included all of it, <laughs> right from season eighteen right up to season twenty six. Wow. But now I go back and I look at things like the Sylvester McCoy stories and I love them. Yeah. And I look at things like the Christopher Bailey stories and I love them. Yeah. And there are other things that I appreciate far more than I did. And even the stuff that I don't still like, I can still see mostly the good points. And then there are a handful of stories where I really don't see much of any worth at all. But but looking back not at here it... to focus on the John Pertwee era. <laughs> But it's, Welcome home. <laughs> I've said this on the podcast before, though. When you look at something in isolation... Yeah, no, it's true. And the, the, the reason being, if you're not enjoying something that's current, mm. there's no end of it in sight. Somebody had linked on Facebook today to an article on... Oh, God, I can't even remember. 
uh, what website it was on. They were talking about the... Don't advertise somebody else's website. No, I'm not going to say. Just say what the article right. was. It was the five most boring episodes of Doctor Who. And their first one was Inferno. Oh, it's Daily Mirror. No, no, it wasn't. It was... Oh, um, yeah. I know which one it is now, but I'm not going to give them any publicity. Really? Uh, is it a bad website? No. Well, no, I don't think so. Is it I'm worth giving them publicity? Well, you can always edit this bit out if you like. I don't do any editing. I'd uh, have to find it. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember... Last week's episode, you did a marvellous edit at the start there. You can put in how many seconds or minutes. Oh, that was deliberate. Oh. <laughs> These two even asked me afterwards. Lee said, no, it was Lee, wasn't it? Lee says afterwards, <laughs> are you going to look at the clock and see how many minutes we've done now so you can edit at the start? And I said, Lee, as if I was ever intending to edit. <laughs> now, Pertwee is not my favourite Doctor. It may have been you know, touched on before, but um, I can't really say the Inferno's boring. But then it's, you know... It's... I d- I mean, I instantly my hackles go up as soon as somebody uses the word boring because mm. the boring is about the the person perceiving things. Yeah, there's a lot <clears> of Doctor <throat> Who that is objectively quite yeah. dull, though. Dull, yeah, is a more appropriate word. Dull, you, yeah. The first ten minutes of the Ambassadors of Death is just a bloke sitting in a room looking at a CSO screen, spouting off gobbledygook. It's terrible. They also slagged off the horns of Nyman, which I'm not having, all right? What were the other three stories then? <sighs> I switched off after Inferno. I thought, oh, really? It's such a boring answer. Yeah. Like, mm, no. Daily Mirror, a few months ago, I think it was the Daily Mirror, did uh, the 25 worst Doctor Who stories of all time. Mm-hmm. And their 25 worst Doctor Who stories were Genesis of the Daleks, Blink. Oh, no, that was a trolling thing, wasn't it? Yeah, the, I, think I don't was, think yeah. it was trolling. I no, think it was, it was just fun. It was, that, that was a genuine it was, spoof. It was, things that, just yeah, it was really... a spoof. It wasn't trolling. Yeah. It was oh, a spoof. Yeah. But also, uh, from well, another perspective... There were deliberate mistakes in there. Like they called the yeah. third Doctor Tom Baker and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. It was yeah, for yeah. fun. Oh, yeah. Some people took it very seriously, though. Well, those people deserve to be trolled, then. It was... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone deserves to be trolled. Oh, I'm sorry, but... If somebody says this is the worst 25 or whatever and it was, Kate 12, Hopkins, however many it was, mm. Doctor Who stories of all time and starts with Genesis of the Daleks and the Caves of Androzani <laughs> and Blink, you know they're pulling your leg. Did you write it? You oh, I wish Kate, I had. Yeah, or they're a No, I wish I had because I looked at mm. it afterwards and I thought, what a brilliant idea. Yeah. And I also thought you could have used that idea to mm. demonstrate how the ones we perceive as classics are really oftentimes not that far removed. Mm. And vice versa. One. Yeah. You look at Genesis of the Daleks and you look at Death to the Daleks or Planet of the Daleks and bar the one character of Davros, those mm. stories are almost identical. There's almost nothing in Genesis. Yeah. And even Davros's... Soundtracks. Well, even Davros's speeches aren't a million miles away mm. from the conversations between um, Taron and the Doctor in Planet of the Daleks. They're talking about a lot of the same stuff. And even Davros's dilemma turns up in Planet of the Daleks because you've got the mm. um, virus on yeah. Spiridon. Mm. So it's not like there's anything new in Genesis of the Daleks, and yet Planet of the Daleks is regarded as a dud, and Genesis is regarded as one of the best stories of all time. Well, we know you've got a bit of a soft spot for Planet, don't we? Well, only because I consider it to be more or less the equal of Genesis. Mm-hmm. More or less, the more being David Wisher. David Wisher? Michael Wisher. Where did David come from? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> and Genesis has got Tom. 
Yes, quite. Yeah, that's very true. But Planet of the Daleks is angled towards John Pertwee's Doctor and he gets to do a lot of his homily type stuff, which is the reason why Mark loves it so. Anyway, moving on. i got a couple of film reviews to bung in. Do you want to do it now or at the end? Knock yourself out. I'll make it quick. usually do at the end. No, I like to vary it. Oh, go on then. All right, I've watched two films in the last week. One of them... I've got to try and remember the bloody name of it. (laughs) Well, I tell you, I'll start with the one I did most recently then, which is called Home Sweet Hell. Oh. Which is... They're coming on wincing already. Yeah. It's a Hollywood black comedy. Right. In other words, it's not Not funny. Not very funny, no. No. But, and it's got people like, it's got Catherine Heigl. Is it not very funny and not very scary? It's neither funny nor scary. No, mm. well, it's got some decent actors in it. Yeah, but it's got Jim Belushi in it in a sort of secondary role. Oh, okay. But even he can't manage to make it funny because mm. the script is just so devoid of any kind of humour at all. Is but the real problem with the film it sets it up. It sets itself up to be. Like a screwball dilemma comedy thing. Mm-hmm. Like very bad things. Have you ever seen very bad things? No. Right. A bunch of guys go to Las Vegas in very bad things. Yeah. On a stag night. Okay. Hire out a prostitute for the stag. And there's an accident in the hotel room. They accidentally end up killing her. And this is all in the first 20 minutes. Like a darker version of Go then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the next hour and a quarter or whatever of the film is things spiralling out of control, Mm. characters going insane, and the film just gets faster and faster and more hysterical, more Mm. ridiculous, until at the end it manages to get tied up. Yeah. And it's just absolutely crazy, absolutely mental. Edge of your seat stuff. But terrific fun. Mm. Those sort of films wind me up. Well, it depends how they go. But it's like basically a it's like basically a forty screwball comedy given a modern makeover mm. with sort of modern dilemma mm. yeah. being a prostitute in a stag's hotel room. It's got people like John Cusack in it. It's directed by Peter Berg, who you've probably never heard of, but uh, he's an actor as well. And if you would see a photograph of him, you'd recognise him. Mm. It's a great film, very funny. Mm. However, Ho- Home Sweet Hell promises to be that kind of a thing. It's about a guy who's like this ridiculously henpecked husband because his wife is one of these suburban housewives types mm-hmm. who's, you know, <laughs> the mo- the lawn, at the start of the film, the lawn is absolutely perfect. And she says, oh, my parents are coming down this weekend, you'd better mow it. And he just looks at it and says, what are you talking about? And... uh you know, the next scene, he's getting a little fruity in the bedroom. And she says, no. She says, I've scheduled sex for the 9th of next month. Oh, dear. So she's that stuck up, right? Mm. And he has an affair with somebody at work. She finds out about it and goes on a murder spree. So you think that this is going to be one of those kind of films yeah. where it gets to the discovery of the affair sort of in the first half an hour. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes murder, cover-up, murder, cover-up, yeah. and the policeman gets involved, mm-hmm. and probably the policeman gets killed, or else right at the very end of the film he finds out what's going on. No. It takes more than half the film 
to get to the discovery. No, probably not more than half the film, but roughly half the film to get to the bit where she discovers the affair. Any film worth its soul, the bit where she discovers the affair is going to it's going to be something clever, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least something interesting. Yeah. He walks into the bedroom and tells her. It's one of the dullest scenes <laughs> oh in my history. <laughs> my instant reaction is that's the blue touch paper <clears throat> for the rest of the film. Mm. Ah, there is no rest of the film. No. The blue touch paper's lit and you think, right, here we go. We're kicking off. She kills the girl. And then they discover that the, the girl's been blackmailing them because her and her boyfriend go round getting her to shag p- rich people mm-hmm. so that he can blackmail them so that they can make their money. Right. So she kills the girl, she kills the girl's boyfriend, and he kills her, end. Wow. And that's it. The, there's even a policeman who's played by Chai McBride. He's, that, he's one of these, uh, you, probably, you probably might you might know him if you saw him, but he's one of these quite eccentric actors that you bring in to give a, a, a performance okay. in your film. So they even bring in this copper halfway through the film and you're thinking, right, the copper's going to be involved. The copper comes round to their house and you get one short scene where the guy is nervous because the copper's saying, oh, one of your members of staff's gone missing. And the guy's thinking, my wife killed her. Please don't find out. And that's it. That's the copper done. He doesn't come back into the film. He makes a couple more appearances, but that's his part in the plot done. We've said before about set pieces. Surely that's there's no set be. pieces. No, it's like from from the point where the <laughs> first murder be. takes place, it should be. Jr. It's too clever for set pieces. You obviously <sighs> don't get it. It should be like Final Destination, where there's like a series of deaths in ever more outlandish fashions <laughs> as the authorities are closing in and the couple who are on the murder spree getting ever more desperate to try and keep them from finding out. Not a bit of it. Just murder, murder, end. Okay. Well, you sold it to me, JR. Oh, dear. But it's very so you, slick. So you asked for a, a meat, Hollywood movie. You asked for a meatball sandwich and you just get a sandwich of mincemeat. No, you asked for a meatball sandwich and they give you a piece of bread. <laughs> that bad? Uh, it was pretty bad. <clears throat> and the other film? Oh, God, I'm trying to think what it was called because the other film I watched this week was good. It Did was called... Yours? No, it was called Can't Come Out to Play. In America, it's... No, I was going to say what the name of the American version is, because if you look up the name of the American version, it gives the damn plot away. Oh. I don't say anything about the plot. Do you know who John McNaughton is? That name rings a bell. John McNaughton, his very first film was Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which, have you ever seen it? No, but I'm aware of it. It's actually a very quiet film, very subdued film. Obviously, it's got its moments, but actually, it's kind of a very low-key portrait of this mm. guy. But, of course, because it's called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, it got that reputation. So, John McNaughton then went on and did a handful of other films in the 90s, including Mad Dog and Glory with Robert De Niro and Uma Thurman, mm. which is like a odd couple romance. She's like a gangster's mall, and he's like a very quiet demure policeman and they end up having a relationship after he saves her from uh, whatever seeing her own toes <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, but again it's a fairly quiet film with a fairly noisy theme 
And then another film he did was Wild Things, which is the one film where he's really gone all out to be hysterical. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen Wild Things, that's a proper screwball comedy, like how, how Home Sweet Hell should have been. And it does spiral out of control, and it is properly mad and outrageous and very funny. And then he stopped making films, and he's not made a film for something like 14 years. And he's come back with this quiet sort of sort of a horror film, more of a thriller, really. Bit of a chiller, shall we say. Yeah. About these two 15-ish-year-old kids. And... So rather than a splatter fest, it's more of a character study. There's no splatter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, there's a... It does end with a slightly full-on sequence mm-hmm. that's very brief, just one scene. Okay. But... Um, Operatic, that's the word I was mm-hmm. looking for. It ends slightly operatically, but it ends in a way that's consistent with the rest of the story. Right. And it's set, it's out in the middle of nowhere. There's just two houses out in the middle of nowhere. And one has a girl who's just lost her parents, who's moved in with her grandparents. And then she discovers this other house. And in this other house is this boy, same age as she is, probably around 14, 15. Mm-hmm. And he's wheelchair-bound, and he's never been out of the house, basically. And so it's about the um, connection that starts forming between these two. But if I would say any more about it, I would start giving things away. because. But, but you recommend people would watch it? Definitely. I'm not saying it's a classic. I'm not saying it's one of these horror films that's going to make your hair stand on end and all this kind of stuff. But you are saying if you had to choose between that and the other one... You go for that every time. <clears throat> it's got some really nice stuff in it and a couple of really big twists mm-hmm. that you may see coming if you knew. If I was to say anything about the plot, you might start looking towards seeing the twists mm. coming. And if I were to tell you the American title, you might start looking to see the twists so coming. Lee would be okay because he never watches trailers or anything like that. No, so Lee would just, be fine. Yeah. But the funny thing about it is there's like a pre-title thing right at the start mm-hmm. that has a lot of the themes from the rest of the film in it, but is otherwise unrelated. Mm. And actually, although that sounds really odd, it works quite well, because you spend most of the first sort of hour of the film <laughs> trying to work out that, why, yeah. how the, does that work how does the pre-titles work into the rest of the film? Mm. And it doesn't. But what it does is it confuses you enough, yeah. so you're not expecting the twists it's when like they come. of hand to kind of get you looking the other way. Almost. I don't think it's deliberate, though. Mm. It seems like it was an accident because it doesn't feel like it was deliberately put in to do that. It feels like it was put in because of the themes of the film that are in the pre-titles bit. Right, I think we've done a podcast now. Well, it's been lovely to see you and, uh, well, see you next time. Cheers. And we'll speak again soon. (laughs) We were supposed to be here to talk about the music. There's an awful lot of music to talk about. Oh, yeah. We were going to talk about the music from the entire first 50 years of Doctor Who. Uh, what we won't do then is talk about the title music, right? It has kind of been done, really, hasn't it? And also, the title music, if we ever want to do a podcast on the title music, mm-hmm. we can fill a whole podcast on the title themes, right? Possibly. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, why not? I think so. Yeah. So maybe we'll just we'll talk say... about other films for the most of it. That's usually what we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... Or politics. Yeah. yeah not anymore. Mm. Not anymore. I think, seeing as we're talking about music, Mark and I discussed this just a minute ago, I 
think we should say a bit about our own musical backgrounds. Okay. Because that might at least... Because otherwise people can say, oh, what the hell do they know? And which they might very well still say, <laughs> and probably <laughs> will. They might say some question. of the stuff I listen to. Mm. No, no, well, not what we listen to, no. but we do. Okay. How we have been involved in music. Yes, okay. So, well, Simon, mm. in what way have you been involved in producing music? I've been making music in one form or another since I was about 18. Right, what do you do? Uh, Program stuff. I do now, yeah, but I play drums, guitar, keyboards. So, but none of them amazingly well, but enough. But at least I, you can play. Yes, but I know enough. So you know about the structure of music. Exactly. Now, Mark, you're different. You, unlike Simon and I, you've mm. never really produced any music. Uh, I had a guitar and learned a few basic chords, and kind of couldn't be asked to carry on learning. But you are a fan. But no, the thing that I think is more important with Mark is that because he worked in MVCs for so many years, I think you get... See, as a person who listens to music, you seek out music to listen Mm, to. Whereas if you work in a record shop, you're surrounded... Especially somewhere like MVC, where it's not necessarily rock music or dance music all day, every day, but you actually get a variety. Anyone under 20 probably won't even know what MVC is or was. They don't need to. The no. point is, you've worked in a shop mm-hmm. where you had, through your entire working week, mm-hmm. a wide variety of different types yeah. of music all the time, which you've obviously absorbed, mm-hmm. including soundtracks and stuff, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, to a degree. So, in other words, your musical background is to have at least a knowledge and appreciation yeah, of many... Yeah, fairly eclectic taste. Um but yeah, certainly working in the music store, <clears throat> everyone got to put on whatever music they wanted within reason. So you got exposed to a lot of stuff that you perhaps wouldn't n- normally have sought out. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it opens your horizons to different types of music. And then I'm like Simon in that I have a basic knowledge mostly of playing keyboards, but I've written songs and I've played in bands. So I have some kind of really basic understanding of what music is and how it works. Photos exist of JR with really long hair. Yeah, that wasn't because of the band. <laughs> I was... Playing in a band. Yeah. Right, so let's go back to the start. This is because we're just going to whip through it, really, because mm. I don't think any of us actually wanted to do a podcast about music. I don't think there's anything any of us had written down and said, right, that's something we need to do. Simon's looking confused. Don't no, no, no. Well, I was looking confused. No, it hadn't occurred to me to uh, that we could talk about it. But actually, going away and making a point of sitting down and listening to it, particularly on headphones, has has really, well, for saying about broadening my horizons. It certainly has with some of the music. I found some surprises. Let's yeah. let's just say. I listen to, as a starter point, you loan me... Well, yeah, let's yeah. say what the starting point for this was, mm. because Mark and I both own the four-disc 50th anniversary collection, and I've yeah. also got the 11-disc one. And we did, I did say, actually, I think on the podcast a few weeks ago, mm. that I was trying out the four-disc one. Yeah. And so, having listened to... and 
Mark didn't realise he was going to be here tonight, but he's <laughs> no. listened to the four-disc one. Yeah, um, not so much recently, but yeah, I've heard bits and bobs. And Simon and I have both played all the way through yep. the four-disc one recently. Mm. And let's face it, you don't need to have listened to the four-disc one or the 11-disc one or whatever, because no. we've all watched Doctor Who, so we've all heard the music. No, but what it does give you is a picture of the journey that the show has taken in that respect. Which is where which I was going to come in, a, yeah. It's quite a thing, really. Well, at the start, you've got a lot of... Um, music that's bought in rather than having a composer create something specifically for the story and even on the occasions when they the thing about that is the stuff that's bought in Mm. tends to be more melodic in nature yeah and it also tends to be fairly simple melodies Mm -hmm. because you're not going to write anything too complicated Mm. for me what's the expression for music you buy in um not store music. Well, library. Um, library music. Mm, stock That's, music, yeah. Stock music. Mm. You're not going to write anything too complicated for stock music because you're going to put people off wanting to use it. Yeah. So it's all fairly simple stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But Militaristic the, or action. Yeah, or, or the... Yeah. yeah. Mm. And it, it it does, you know, in the popular expression, does what it says on there. You have got that kind of music concrete sort of style, haven't you? Like well, that was in bought in from a specific band mm. rather than from a stock music house. Mm. So... And that also is really simple, actually. Yeah. Les sonorifiques. <laughs> Soporifiques. <laughs> I, listening to that era, I adored... I mean, it was, it was kind of more... When you did have music, like you say, it was library music, but when it was, it was homegrown stuff, it was mm. <clears throat> soundscapes. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily musical in the, in the traditional sense. Mm. I get the feeling it's kind of off the back of things like Forbidden Planet. Yeah. It's that same, and I love it. Yeah. I love that otherworldliness that they... But it lends an atmosphere to the, the programme that wouldn't be there without it. Exactly, yeah. I couldn't listen to it for pleasure, though. No. No, no. I mean, soundtracks are a different beast altogether from anything else you choose to buy and listen to. I've heard yeah. people try to pass that off as music, that sort of stuff. In, as in music you listen to, and it's it, it tends to be very self-absorbed. and can be a bit Emperor's New Clothes as well, can't it? Very much so. Absolutely. Don't you understand it? Oh, yeah. Mm. You're oh, yeah. intelligent. Mm. Not, yeah, no, it's not a case of being intelligent enough to understand <laughs> yeah. it. It's a case of having smoked enough drugs that your brain's turned <laughs> off enough yeah. to understand it. And we're saying it. about having background in music that you can listen to it and you think, mm. yeah, I know how you did that. It's just, why did you do that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. But in the case of a television soundtrack, it mm. can work. Mm. My problem with the 60s, I think there's actually some of the music that's written for the show in the mm. 60s. I think there are some lovely things going on there. The Invasion's got a few sort of yeah. jazzy things. Yeah. They're mm. quite nice. Mm-hmm. And some of the really simple stuff, like, is it Tristram Carey who yeah. did the Dalek Invasion of Earth? Ooh, I can't remember now, but I know he did quite a few scores. In the yeah, 60s. but those drum rhythms during the chase mm-hmm. uh, sequences at the start of Dalek Invasion of Earth, yeah. couldn't listen to it for pleasure again, mm. but it's really effective on screen, Yeah, and it's distinct as well. Mm. This is the thing about in the 1960s, a lot of the different, a lot of this, each story has got its own different feel yeah. from all the others, because mm-hmm. they're using a variety of different sources and a variety of different composers. Mm-hmm. And because the composers, and everybody listening to this will know why I'm saying this, because we're about to get to the 1970s. Mm. But because the different composers have got time to come up with 
different ambiance for each of the stories, yeah. what they're doing is something different mm. all Although, the time. Space Adventure, which is one of my favourite 60s tracks, does get used a lot. And not only with Cybermen, which is the one you kind of identify with, because they stick it in on uh, Web of Fear, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Great tune, but... Yeah. I have a feeling, actually, its first appearance was before even the Cybermen, something like the mm. War Machines, or I could be wrong. Maybe. From from listening to the album as it as it goes through the moment, my, ear, my ears pricked up during the 60s era for when Dudley came in. Certainly, mm. and certainly for the Troughton era, where you do get those genre-specific episodes, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden you get the, oh mm. God, I'd looked up the instrument so I'd know what to say, but there's that instrument they use in the Avengers, and they used even used up through the Saint and things like that, where it comes in and you get that, that kind of action-adventure feel to it. Yeah, I know what you're oh, saying. I know, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Uh, the... I'm thinking of the box by... Um... Orbital. 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 Yeah. the same instrument. I can't remember what it's called now. You're not talking about the theremin, are you? You're no, talking about no. the um, percussion thing, aren't yeah. you? Ding, yeah. Ding-a-ding. <laughs> yeah. That one. Yeah, no, that is really The effective. digging. Yeah. That one. Yeah, that's the one. That's the new term mm. for it. <laughs> <laughs> but that works really well. Yeah. So a lot of the 60s stuff, I, I said my problem with it, uh, I'll come back to that in a second. Mm. A lot of the 60s, because that's the second time now I've said my problem with it and I haven't said what the <laughs> problem is. That's very unlike you, Jay, huh? <laughs> No, I get there in the end, but a lot of the a lot of the sixties stuff has got a very sixties feel. Dulcimer, could be yeah. Dulcimer? I think it might I be. Don't know. It's oh. like a hammer instrument. Yeah, yes. yeah. Right. Um, there's a very sixties feel, mm. Mm. even on the. I mean, the music and some of the sixties stories ranges vastly from that sort of poppy, jazzy stuff to the yeah. real ambient soundscape stuff. Yet it all sounds like the 1960s, yeah. mm-hmm. and the stories feel like the 1960s. So the music and the stories kind of have a syncopation thing going on. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say what my problem with it is, and this is not necessarily to do with the fact that the music was written beforehand and piped into the studio as they were recording, but I think the music in the 60s and in the 70s, and in the 80s, but not in the 90s, and not in the new series, Mm. takes you out of the story because it doesn't feel at home with the pictures that are on the screen. And also um, it's applied almost like punctuation. Yeah. So you get the end of the scene, it goes, da-da. Yeah. It's that. It's such a But it's also the sound quality. Yeah. Mm. Do you know people are always saying about the horrible jump from film to video? In the sixties and seventies, yeah. and yeah. right, every time the, to a, and, uh, location, yeah, and every time the music comes on, uh, same it's thing, same exact thing. same thing with me because the music just not just does not sound appropriate to the pictures mm. on the screen. Mm. Can't think of a better way to describe it. They just sound like two separate entities, and the one's been superimposed on top of the other. The music feels like CSO. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best way of describing it. Mm. And even the best music feels like CSA. Segwaying into the 70s? Well, was, Not I just, just yet, because I, I was going to ask you to if mm. you felt the same way about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I you do this thing of forgiving it, don't you? You're aware of the era, and, and it's kind of enjoyable in that it does have those quirks, because you do know it's 60s, and you knew it has that yeah. certain character. At uh, one point I wanted to make was that I love the fact that there's the piece on there called Zoe's Theme. Yeah. 
and you listen to it and you think, what theme? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what theme? And then yeah. you think, if that was applied now, Murray Gold, you know that would be a mm. gorgeous piece of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Complete accompaniment to the character rather than just being this yeah. punctuation. Sound, we'll yeah. get into melody and that in a Yeah, minute. I think it's a I nice think... bookend from that era to the end, really. And it kind of shows the journey. But yeah. Because I think the way melody's used and the way harmony's used really becomes a problem in the 1980s or becomes an issue in the 1980s, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's an issue in the 60s and 70s, but I think by the 1980s, it's... I was going to say, though, about the 1960s, because the 1960s is all studio, mostly live, Mm. and it's got that slightly mad... It's got that... It's got that feeling that the Beatles' early films had, where it's just four guys, chuck them on a bus, chuck them in the TV studio (laughs) and just see what happens. Yeah. And Doctor Who feels a bit like that as well. Oh, we've built these sets in this TV studio. Right, let's get in there. Oh, there's a monster. Let's have a bit of fun. What can we do with this? Oh, here's a really great actor who's been something else. Hamming it up for all he's worth. Okay, let's chuck some mad music on top of it. It's There's an enthusiasm yeah. about working against the odds to produce something worthwhile that means even though the music feels entirely alien to the pictures you're watching on the screen it still kind of fits in with the sort of tone of it because the tone is already so mad. Mm. I adore those moments of silence where there's no background (laughs) music and all you can hear is the shoddy props being moved around, making Mm. all these noises. Somebody's voice in the background saying, that's the heart not camera through. (laughs) (laughs) You were saying before about um, being able to go back and revisit episodes that you initially thought weren't that great and actually being able to reappraise them and get a new appreciation of them. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that also can be applied to the music in some cases. There's one in particular I can really think of, but it's a bit early yet. But well, go on, say it. It doesn't matter. Uh, the Sea Devils. Oh, you have a better appreciation for the Sea Devils now? Yeah, first time I heard it, I absolutely hated it. Oh, God, this is horrendous. Um, I remember somebody describing it as... Oh, and I forget who it was now. Um, they said they weren't entirely sure the first time they watched it whether it was supposed to be sound effects or the score. Yeah. Um, it was like the two were merging. Mm. But having gone back to, I think Simon's friend Paul actually turned me around on the Sea Devils because uh, they do a show on the radio and they played a remix by Paul Hartnell from Orbital. Orbital. Yeah, 8.58 um, now, isn't he? Yeah. And... Mm. Um, it's it kind of opened my eyes to the structure of the, the music and I went back and listened to it again today and I, I really like it. Yeah, rather than sounding like just little notes in isolation, yeah. all of a sudden it, you could hear the whole mm-hmm. body the movement. of the piece. Yes. Yeah. That, that is a big problem in Doctor Who music and I think that's a huge problem in the 1980s. Not with all the music in the 1980s, but just some of it. But yeah... And actually, now we have segued into the 1970s, the early 1970s. Mm. That year in particular, Series 8, Season 8, whatever people want to call it, was the one where they decided it was going to be all electronic, Mm. didn't they? And so, because 1970 feels more like the 60s still. I remember when we we reviewed Season 7 in one of the earlier episodes and watching... I'm trying to remember which episode it was now. There's a car chase with... Ambassadors um, of Death. Yeah, I think and it's it was. slightly jazzy again. Yeah, and I'm thinking, 
who the hell is this? And it's Dudley. <laughs> and it's Dudley Simpson. <laughs> yeah. Right? Oh wow, that's different. Dudley mm. Simpson got stuck in a rut, mm. and he got stuck in a rut very quickly. Yeah. And this is why I brought up season eight mm-hmm. because I think that's where it happened. Because mm. prior to uh, series eight, season eight, you have Dudley Simpson just doing occasional scores. Yeah. And each one is bringing a different theme to... And when I say different theme, I don't mean the melody. I mean Mm -hmm. the tone. Yeah. And so... And Ambassadors of Death, actually, is very similar to his score for The Invasion, Mm. which is probably appropriate because, you know, he's basically scoring basically the same kind of story. Mm. But then you get to season eight, and it's not just that they say do it electronically. Because obviously Barry Letts is first in charge of actually bringing the elements together. Mm. And he's obviously decided. Because Barry Letts, lest we forget, is the guy who commissioned and almost used the Delaware theme. We weren't going to talk about the theme, were we? I'm not going to talk about <laughs> the theme. But the, th- yeah. the reason I've brought it up is because Barry Letts, obviously, in 1971, mm. wanted to do what John Nathan Turner yeah. actually did. In 1981. Simon, you're a huge synth fan. What do you think of the Delaware theme? I I don't know what you're... I don't know what oh, you're talking about. Right, right. Oh, okay. But the, the reason I've brought that up, Barry Letts comes in mm. and he obviously wants to shake his fist mm. at it mm. and come up with a new feel for Doctor Who. Yeah. And so he brings in the... Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I have heard this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, an, is it one of the extras on the DVD? Yes. Of Carnival of Monsters, I think. Mm. Oh, yeah. possibly I have then, yes. Yeah, it's okay. different. Very different. Is it really? It's really awful. badly electronic. Okay. <clears throat> in yeah. Not in a great way. No. <laughs> but then, the, so is the 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 background music, the incidental music across season eight. But what's mm. happening is that they have taken a score. And instead of realising it on instruments, have realised it on synthesizers, yeah. basically. So you've got synthesizers doing things that a cello mm. or a violin mm. or a horn mm. ought to yeah. be doing. Yeah. Sea Devils is the odd one out because that's by Malcolm, Malcolm Clark. Clark. Yeah. But the rest of it, I think all the other yeah. five stories, yeah. all the, the other four the stories. <laughs> the same effect happens, but we'll talk about that in a Yeah, yeah. Oh, quite. No, yeah. That's why I said... Barry Letts tried to yeah. do what JMT eventually did because mm-hmm. Barry Letts gave up on this the following year. So you've got like a really horrible synthesizer doing a horn yeah. part and something else. And what you've got the composer doing is because he, with a with a keyboard, if you're using only electronic sounds, mm-hmm. that gives you a limited palette. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you can use it like an orchestra. Because if you took too many keyboards on there, it turns into white noise. Yeah. It's not like where you can have half a dozen violins and a couple of violas and a cello. If you tried to do that with keyboards, it would just turn into a horrible din. Yeah, you have to literally slightly detune each note. In so order. you yeah. see, so with this limited palette of about five or six keyboards mm. is all you've got to work with. You're basically writing chamber music. Mm. And so what Dudley Simpson does is he realises because this is the first time he's done most of the season all by himself, he realises here that what he really needs to do with Doctor Who, and taking it forwards, the reason why this lesson beds in is because he realises he can apply it to the orchestra. If you're writing chamber pieces for Doctor Who, on the one hand, that means you don't have to score it 
with much complication because you don't have lots and lots of different parts to write for so you can be so you can be a lot looser with what you score yeah if you're scoring an orchestra mm. with so many different parts to write that all have to be in harmony with one another you've got to keep a lot of the themes very simple the background violins for example mm. during any one particular part of the score will often be doing just two or three notes mm. Mm. <clears throat> as you know very well from listening to john williams if you listen to john williams yeah. the main theme is going on over the top but what's happening underneath it is usually very simple yeah. and the only times you really notice it are when you have like a key change or whatever but dudley simpson realizes that if you're scoring it for a chamber you don't have to do that. You don't have to keep the simple recurring things going on in the background because there's not a lot going on over the top of them. So a lot of those background instruments become the foreground instruments. And actually, as the pieces of music develop, what you'll see is the five or six different instruments swapping over which one is lead and which one is background. Mm -hmm. And then the following year, when he... It has when he goes he's not um he's not stuck with the synthesizer anymore and he can go back to doing yeah. music on real instruments what he realizes is that to save money and also to save him having to score you know huge orchestral sounds mm. week after week what he can do is basically what he did on the keyboards with just like six real instruments instead. Yeah, so pairing back rather than having a full yeah. orchestra, just having a... Mm. Or with five instruments and a keyboard, yeah. so you've still got the electronic undertone. Mm. And that's really where the rot sets in for the 70s, because all of a sudden you've got Dudley Simpson, this guy who wrote some beautiful themes in the 60s. Yeah. And when called upon to do so in the 70s, in something like City of Death, mm -hmm. he's still capable of doing yeah. it even though, obviously, patently, that's just a rip-off of Gershwin. Yeah, American in Paris, isn't it? But this, yeah, but this guy who's capable of doing all that is all of a sudden writing these chamber pieces without themes mm. for six instruments every week, and all of a sudden it just turns into mud, really. But it also it? means that when you do get someone different on board for a story, is quite a noticeable difference. Um Instant one that springs to mind is Death of the Daleks. But, yeah. And actually, Death of the Daleks, as much as people take the mickey out of it, I think there's some nice stuff in the Death of the Daleks soundtrack. It's not soundtrack. bad, but, yeah, I mean... It's the Dalek theme itself it that's the problem. It's bad. It's like watching... It's like somebody playing the soundtrack to a Lauren Hardy film whilst you're watching Death of the Daleks. It just... Slowed down to half speed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You see, the way this is all falling down is, in theory... Soundtrack music shouldn't be noticed, but actually, what's happening instead is yeah. Or is it just that we're nerds and we pay far more attention to this sort of stuff than your average no, person I think, watching it would? No, I think the music from Doctor Who has always been a talking point, mm. and it's not just the themes either, but the background music in Doctor Who. I think one of the things, because in the seventies when Doctor Who was really right in the nation's public consciousness, mm. one of the things that people always said was partly because of the music. And the reason why is because Dudley Simpson is basically using a chamber orchestra size, yeah. but not chamber orchestra instruments, mm -hmm. and he's not scoring it in a conventional way. Yeah. So the music itself... And I think, actually, by the time he gets used to doing this, and his soundtracks 
during the Hinchcliffe era, a pretty dull, forgettable. Mm, mm. I couldn't bring a single melody to mind from the entire period, if I'm honest. I have to say, if I picked out anything from that era, it was the... There's a... Jeffrey Bergen ones. Caesar's Caesar Death? Seeds of Doom. Seeds of Doom. Yeah. Terror, Terror of the Zygons. Terror of the Zygons. Yeah, they were the two. Terror of the Zygons is amazing. Very good. Yeah. But Dudley Simpson... Forgettable. But that was all down to the fact that the director didn't want to work with Dudley Simpson, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The reason why he went with But I also wondered, when I was going through those stories as well, they seemed whether they went back to traditional instruments for the Earth-based stories. No, what um, happens... Yeah, there's... Uh, who did um, Silurians? Oh, um, that, that was... that Clark as well? No, I don't think it was. No. I think it was... Aldrich was in here, actually. We've got the booklets in front of us, so I can perhaps look it up. Is it Tristram? No, it's Clary Blyton. Oh, Clary Blyton. Because he did um, Revenge of the Cybermen as well, I think, if I remember rightly. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and that's a really mm. memorable one for me because I bought the VHS, or I had the VHS yeah, yeah. for me back in the day, and I watched that so many times, it's just lodged in my brain. He does, yeah, and he Death of the Daleks, obviously, mm. as well. But De- Silurians is the one where he tried to the use... The horn, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, where he tried to use instruments to actually represent the... Obviously, he couldn't go back to musical instruments from the, you know... Cretaceous period or whatever, <laughs> but he tried. He tried to use music instruments that would give that impression, mm. which ended up with uh, a kazoo thing. It's really odd. Well, it's going back to what you're saying about it taking you out of the program. You're rather it's than, so yeah. in your face. It's like, what the hell is that? And as bad as I think um, <clears throat> Dudley Simpson's music was during this middle seventies period. Mm. I think it works really well. Yeah. It's the one period in Doctor Who where the music feels appropriate to the it pictures. It serves the purpose. Where it doesn't bring you out program, of it so much anymore. music yeah. in its own right. It's yeah. bloody awful. <laughs> Jeffrey Bergen's two things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. On Tickly, the other hand. Zygons. Zygons and Seeds of yeah. Doom. What he does is he picks up from Dudley Simpson. Mm. He uses the chamber orchestra size, yeah. but scores it more conventionally. Mm-hmm. So you've actually got themes and melodies. Yeah. As opposed to Dudley Simpson's, you know, a lot of the time Dudley Simpson would just be like half a scale followed by a chord crescendo followed by a, another half a scale in a different key or something, <laughs> you know. And that's what dogs the 80s as well, if you ask me. Not all of it, but a good deal of it. <coughs> but yeah, Jeffrey Bergen, yeah. who went on to do things like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. All right. And I believe... I could be wrong. I think he was Oscar nominated for something. Mm. Maybe even won an Oscar. Mm. So we get to the 1980s. Mm. And again... Simon loves it because obviously he's a massive synth fan. But no, I tell you, no. He's not giving me a he he loves it face. No, he's not. But before we... When I was listening to the CD, what became apparent was unlike the 1970s, but the 1960s is just wild and something mm-hmm. different in every story. And then the 1970s, season eight sounds a bit different because it's the whole electronic one. But in terms of the actual score, mm. from series, season eight through to season 17, there's not really a great deal of difference in the way it's scored. No. And then in the 1980s, what struck me was that it starts off using essentially the same template for scoring Mm. as you had in the 1970s, Mm. which is that 
although they're using keyboards now, what they're using is a very limited palette of different sounds. And rather than coming up with themes and melodies, a lot of what they're coming up with is just chords and occasional notes and stings and things like that. Punctuation. But the music in the 1980s kind of develops from the start of the 1980s to the end. Mm. So that actually, if you listen to the music for season 26 and the music for season 18 right next to each other, they'd sound completely different. But if you listen to the whole decade chronologically, mm. you don't hear the change happening. There is a blend, yeah. yeah. sort of gradually gets there. Yeah. So yeah. that by uh, Mark Hares and people like that, mm. although I think his score for The Curse of Fenric is slightly atypical in this regard, but by the time you've got people like him and um, oh, some of the other guys who are doing late 80s. Oh, um, Kevin McCulloch. No, not Kevin McCulloch. He's not the one I was thinking of. Who's the other guy who comes in in the late 1980s? I should look in my little booklet and see if the name... Fla- <laughs> Dominic Howell. Glynn. Oh, Dominic, yeah. Dominic Glenn, Glenn. Yeah. No, Peter Howell's in at the start of the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. By the time he gets Dominic Glynn and Mark Ayres, they're actually writing melodies and themes again. Yeah. Hmm. But at the start of the 1980s, what they're doing is what Dudley Simpson was doing in the middle of the 1970s, scoring to the pictures. So that often the music, when listened to in isolation, is jarring Mm. and dull, to be honest, because none of the punctuation means anything without the pictures that it's punctuated. You do get themes creeping in, certainly things like Keeper of Trarkin. You Um, do get occasional ones, yeah. Yeah, which which I, uh, I kind of, because I do have this soft spot for season 18, where you've got the mixture of the Im- the images and the sounds, it, it has a it has a, a little bubble all of its own, which isn't quite the same in anywhere yeah, else yeah. in Doctor Who. Maybe I but think in season nineteen they lose that big style. Yeah, no, and absolutely. The music for nineteen twenty and twenty one is pretty much wall to wall awful, to be honest. I've been trying to. I, I I always say the sounds they start using, they start using this FM synthesis thing, where, yeah. where, which is... Oh, this is your problem, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> is it's to do... The, the way I can describe it is almost like... Well, obviously it's digital. It's to do with having sounds <clears throat> which are... Well, they're the not synthesised. They are played back from, from a chip. Mm. So you don't get that organic... Um, well, that's exactly the word I was coming to. Yeah, that was the one thing that was going for Dudley Simpson mm. was because it was organic music. It felt more consistent with the pictures. Yeah, and in the nineteen eighties, it goes. It is the perfect example of what I was saying about the pictures and the music being removed from one another because it's got this horribly tinny synthy sound. Mm. Mm. Well, I said to Simon earlier, um, I felt a bit like Pete Howell's version of the theme tune I think is really good I think mm. if you're going to have a go at redoing it um, I thought it was a pretty decent attempt if you're going to go that way but I felt like a lot of the instruments that were used for the scores it's almost like they blew the budget on the theme yeah. and they didn't really have anything decent to give the guys I tell you what, for the scores it's like the musical equivalent of the first episode of Trial of the Time Lord where all the money's gone in that one yeah, effect shot effect and there's shot, nothing yeah, left yeah. for anything Actually, else the music in that sequence is great mm. as well mm. I found out something weird listening to Radio Free Scarra about the music for that sequence he wrote that music way before he even knew what he was writing it for mm. as just an example track to give to John Nathan wow. Turner 
And they used that on that well, opening perfect. shot. Yeah, yeah. But that shows you yeah. why the rest of that score doesn't mm. fit, because then all of a sudden he's not writing music, mm. he's writing something to accompany the pictures. Yeah, yeah. And Doctor Who, this is... See, in 1977, or early 78, when Star Wars came out and its effect was being felt, mm. what you'll always hear is Doctor Who couldn't compete with Star Wars because the effects... Right? This is what people always say, because the effects. And something like, well, let's bring up Blake 7, because it goes hand in hand with Doctor mm. Who, because of the Dudley Simpson thing yeah. as well. Blake 7 is telling pretty much the same story as Star Wars. Yeah. And the reason why people don't think it competes is because of the effects. I don't think the effects are that relevant. No. Because this, you've got to remember now as well, when we watch them back, we're watching on huge tellies that are four times the size of the tellies yeah. you've seen it on back then. Mm. But the music is the difference. John Williams, and people sometimes think this is the wrong way to go about it, but John Williams writes a big orchestral neoclassical score to go with science fiction. Yeah. And I think that's a brilliant match. Mm -hmm. And this is what Doctor Who wasn't doing. Dudley Simpson is writing these tiny little chamber pieces yeah. for science fiction. And it's not a brilliant match. And it works well enough because Doctor Who's a television series, so it's kind of small and condensed anyway. Yeah. So it kind of works well enough. But when you get to Star Wars, when you get to 1978 and 79 and 80, and the music really needs to... The music is what sells the pictures. Mm -hmm. And when the music sounds small and the pictures are small, it's not selling I anything it's at like, all. It's like getting a cinema organist and giving them a monophonic keyboard to play with. Mm. To, to, yeah, yeah. To do the... Or a stylophone. Yeah. <laughs> well, like getting a classical pianist up on stage and giving him a little bon tempi. Yeah. I don't want to completely rag on the 80s. Uh, there are, in my opinion, some quite memorable pieces of music. Uh, no, I wasn't going to rag on the 80s either. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say, I think like Simon, season 18, because they've just changed the style. Yeah. I think people are putting more effort in and mm. they've not got into a rut yet. No. So... Something like Legopolis, for example. Yeah. That piece at the end of Legopolis is burned mm. into all our memories. Mm, yeah. But actually, as a piece of music goes, it's got some nice chord changes. Yeah. And it's got a couple of nice small melodies. But the main melody is, again, just a scale. Yeah. yeah. And that's very disappointing, really. But because it's burned on our memories... We're so used to hearing it, we don't yeah. recognise what it is anymore. And if you look at the rest of the music in Legopolis, it's pretty forgettable. People only remember that piece right at the end. Mm. And I think one of the main reasons people f remember that bit at the end is because it actually incorporates the first three notes of the Doctor Who theme for once. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does. And that's the bit you remember. Mm -hmm. mm. But I think once you get in the rest of the three years of Peter Davison, in fact, I had the Earthshock music on in the car driving it. It's Malcolm Clark again, isn't it? It's awful. There's almost nothing memorable about uh, it whatsoever. I don't know. Maybe it was something to do with my age, but certainly... You remember that marching theme for the yeah, Cybermen? Yeah. That is such a tiny part of the music mm, for I that guess. story. And the rest of the music for that story is totally I devoid really like of melody. I really like the score for The Two Doctors. I think it works on a couple of levels. You've got the whole sort of Spanish thing where yeah. Peter Howell uses the mm. guitar to kind of bring out that Spanish feel. Um, well, he 
think it's great or not, I don't no. know. But also you've got that theme for the Santarans as well, which I think worked really well. But some of the themes that are in the studio stuff before Santarans turn up is just as bland as the rest of the There's also music. This, mm-hmm. this thing starts creeping in. I think I'm right in saying that guitar is sampled guitar. It's not is real it? guitar, I think. I um, might get mixed up. No, you might be right, because I seem to remember when Survival came on they and they used a real guitar. I think that was the first time they'd actually used a real guitar in Doctor Who in a wow. decade. Yeah. yeah. So I'm you a, could be right. Yeah, you've got those little... Yeah. Flamenco. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, arpeggios, yeah. And, yeah, oh. you can kind of... Okay. It, yeah, it, it just sounds slightly wooden, doesn't it? It sounds... It's using samples on so the So musically, it's, yeah. it's... Yeah, as you say, it's pretty strong and it, mm. and it works. But that's the but, weird thing about season 23... Mm. Is that I don't know whether it's because they've got a brasher doctor or whether because Eric Sayward's finally doing the Doctor Who that it, it seems obvious now that he always wanted to do, but all of a sudden the music I don't know what the music does, it simplifies and by simplifying becomes stronger for it. Yeah, instead of trying to overcomplicate things by writing punctuation for exact moments in the uh, you know, in the in what's happening with the pictures, all of a sudden they're actually writing themes again. Attack of the Cybermen has mm. actually got some mm. m- music that's way more memorable yeah. than some some of the things that preceded it. There's a yeah. piece from Time Lash on that album, and it's pretty good. Yeah, it's surprising, <laughs> it is, isn't it? it? Is, yeah, um, it was a lady composer, wasn't it? I think. Oh, well, I can't remember. I didn't we go to our little booklets and go to your little booklet. Another point I wanted to make, and this goes Elizabeth back to Elizabeth Parker. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, is this business, like I say, of of using a synthesized, a synthesized or sampled guitar? Mm. It goes back to what you were saying about where they try to get the synth to behave like a real instrument. Yeah, yeah. Don't. It's not a real instrument. So stop trying to make it. And this is a criticism of music in general, yeah. and certainly of that era, certainly of the eighties. But I can see, Why? I can see a huge difference between that, yeah. and then what Kef McCulloch, McCulloch was doing later down the line yeah. with, you know, remember really did. I mean, it just oh. sounded like it's not until you, you get into Bon Tempe before it does. It yeah, sounds just it's like horrible. That. Isn't it's not it? until you get into the TV movie where they actually get a synthesized orchestra to sound fairly close to the real thing. Well, but you can still tell. I like the, we'll get to TV movie in a yeah. minute, but I actually like the music in the TV movie mm. way more than I like almost anything that preceded it. One thing I'd like to point out, Mark of the Rani. Mm. Great yeah, score. Yeah, beautiful score, yeah. Really Would sound so that much, uh, that's uh, Jonathan Gibbs, but it's the pastoral one. Mm. Yes. Would have sounded so much nicer on real yeah. instruments, mm. but even so, it's actually got melodies for yeah. a change. Mm. That makes a huge difference. That's budget. Isn't it? But I tell you what, um, some people really like it. Mordrin Undead. I, I don't think mind that's it. a horrible score. I don't mind it, actually. I'm all, I'm, yeah, I'm one of them. Oh, no, I think it's <laughs> horrible. <laughs> I've still got my massive soft spot for the Five Doctors. I, it can come back yeah. to what you say, we know it so well, but I think it works really well. You love the yeah. whole thing, it's yeah. Five Doctors, yeah. is that Peter Howell again? I can't remember. I, have, I think it is, yeah. I'm looking, and it's, a, yeah, Peter Howell. Mm. He's at, yeah, I think because it's Terence Dick's script yeah. that allows him to bring in more s- simple themes and melodies because it's kind of a simpler script. It's a more straightforward script. But also the choice of noises, though, you know, that woo 
sort of you know yeah. she's actually picking the right noise for that part in this in the so as you say it's it's structured and it's composed Rather possibly than, away yeah. from the screen to a point where it's it's produced it just sounds like music as opposed it's cohesive. to yeah yeah and what you were saying about instruments you wouldn't get a cello to try and do what a clarinet does no so why get a yeah. why try and get a synthesizer to do what a real instrument does? Mm. That's kind of your point. Mm. Um, then <laughs> Sylvester McCoy, yeah. paradiddles. <laughs> For God's sake, just use a friggin' drum. Seriously, Simon's got steam coming. Oh no no no! Forget the Kef McCullough ones because the Kef McCullough. Oh no ones no, it's not no, just Kef actually. No, it's not oh, just no no Kef. no. Actually, yeah, because this Dominic is... does as well. I think Dominic and um, Marquez does in because of Fenric. That's pretty horrible stuff in Curse of Fenric. Yeah, yeah, they're all guilty of it. But not all of the music in the Sylvester McCoy years is that bad. Well, I found Marquez is a breath of fresh air when he comes in. I think they all are, to be honest. See, you did there. Even oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a breath of fresh airs. There we go. But what even Keith McCulloch, and Keith McCulloch's is horribly instrumentized. Mm. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But, uh, well, he uh, does that. He does that fifties um, piece, doesn't he? For um, Delta, Delta and the Bannerman. No, that's Simon, okay. Simon's that's favorite. horrible <laughs> because it's synthesized. Yeah, they're using modern instruments to make what? What? What was to stop them just hiring a band? <laughs> yeah, I know, but even an didn't... amateur band, an amateur rock and roll band, somebody who does authentic fifties mm. stuff and just do it. It was. Yeah, it was yeah. like no. I, I can I can kind of understand taking the decision. Now I'm going to do it myself. And now I can do it myself because I've got a band in a box. You know, without being rude, it's um. Well, he was a pop musician. A nightmare in general MIDI. It really is. It's just. <laughs> <clears throat> but in season twenty four, all of a sudden they're back to themes again mm. and melodies and writing proper mm. music. And even Keith McCulloch does that. Even if you look at Battlefield and Remembrance of the Daleks, as horrible as the instrumentization actually yeah, is, the actual music, the music itself mm. is back to being proper music, yeah, yeah. and it sounds more like the music they had in the sixties, where they were prepared to do something that was simple that would accompany the pictures, rather than something that would try and fit into every beat. Simon, you like fan edits, edit. don't you? Of films. Have you ever been tempted to do a fan edit of the, the soundtrack to a Doctor Who? I, if anyone's listening and there's some way of getting hold of a Doctor Who without the music... There's a couple on the DVDs. Yeah, there's a couple of DVDs. A couple of episodes. Out, yeah. Vengeance on Varos. There's a... I think Vengeance on Varos and Mark of the Rani. Mm-hmm. I've got versions without the music. Got to find the time now. You've, <laughs> you can only do. But no, it would be. You can only do it with the later ones from the mm. before, prior to Sylvester McCoy, but after Peter Davison. Well, so you I think can literally strip the soundtrack off. No, because of the way um, John Nathan Turner kept the masters. He kept masters without the soundtrack on. Oh, okay. Without the music on and the sound yes, effects. Yes. So it's just the voices. Yeah. So because they kept, they had different types of edits. So I don't think any of these exist for Sylvester McCoy. I know I could be wrong. I don't know. But yeah, definitely Vengeance on Varos. And there's, there's at least some one really of the smart piece of software out there that can just strip it out. Well, even, yeah. even more so is to musically keep it the same, but try using different instruments yeah. to see if it just gels. Yeah. I think you could probably... See, that's the thing with the Kef McCulloch ones. The music itself... I don't think is as hideously bad as it sounds on screen no. because of those drums and Just because those of those stabs, stabs yeah. Oh. 
And Marquez <laughs> does that as well. He I know, a Fenway, I know. Oh, yeah, is... but there's one piece I listened to a bit earlier, the Marquez, a Marquez bit, where there's this lovely arpeggi- arpeggiation or arpeggiator. Ghostlight, comes... maybe? Possibly. And it and it's crafted and it blends in and it's properly mixed and, and it's gorgeous. It's yeah, just like yeah. a proper piece of... Mm. It's like a piece of Tangerine Dream or something like that, mm. which I'm not really a fan of, but... It's that. Yeah. In the right place at the mm-hmm. right time. Exactly. One of those things. Survival's got a nice... Oh, well, Survival's got some nice music and some of it. It's like a lot of the 80s. Even the ones that are better have still got some pretty dull bits. Mm. But... But I think if there is a problem with Sylvester McCoy, Kef McCulloch and their dreadful drums and stabs aside, I think the music in the Sylvester McCoy is as bad as it has ever been for not sounding like it's married to the pictures. Mm. It's going on a bit of a tangent. I'm just trying to think. I know in a lot of cases, Big Finish on their audios, they like to try and replicate the sound of the era that they're making their plays in. But I don't... Unless I'm really missing a trick. I don't recall hearing anything really that sounded like... That. Kef McCulloch no. and the Seventh Doctor ones. I think they've well, I think steered they've, clear of that. Yeah, I think they avoided that, yeah. Yes. Well, the TV <laughs> movie we don't need to say much about, but actually TV movie is it's John Debney and he is actually doing a mm. soundtrack that is an orchestral faux classical soundtrack mm. to go with science fiction in the same way as somebody like John Williams would. Mm. Mm. And I think it works really well. And I think <laughs> yeah. it's actually music that you can listen to Divorced from the pictures and get something out of. I'm fairly sure he's not using a real orchestra, though. It sounds like it's um, I don't know, it's fair light or well, it's probably too late to be fair light. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Delaware. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it says actually here. I'm looking at the light. booklet again, and it <laughs> says arranged by John Debney and John Sponsler. Mm. So I would think it probably is an orchestra. Actually, okay. The only pro- the John Debney, I think. The incidental music great. I know we said we didn't talk, weren't going to talk about themes, but you yeah. can't really avoid it in this instance. I mm-hmm. think his theme. I th- I think the ideas there. I think that's the one instance in this soundtrack where the idea doesn't work. Doesn't it start with the middle eight, or did I misremember that? No, it starts. Yeah, people always bring it's this it, up that it starts with the middle eight. It's, it doesn't come together until the drums kick in, and that's at the, mm, the end credits. I don't mm, think it. The, do the drums come in on the? It, the, in the opening titles comes at the end of a pre-title sequence yeah. and the score comes up through the pre-title yeah. sequence into the middle eight and then into the main theme yeah. for the titles. I yeah, think. I just never, I don't know, it, I never... It's all right. It doesn't I mean, work, it's plodding, mm, yeah. is what it yeah. is. Yeah. Instead of lifting off like a John Williams score would, I'm probably slightly biased because I grew up in that era where I was... One of those kids who they were still playing kind of a version of the original theme at the tail end of Tom Baker's era. Yeah. And as a very small child, that used to scare the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Whereas this is just very, like you say, it's by the numbers, isn't it? Just... Whereas, give it another however many years it was, eight years, is it? Mm. Nine years. And all of a sudden, Murray Gold shows him how to do it. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's not that far away. It's just well, it's right, samples yeah. from the original, isn't it? Which helps, yeah. I Which helps it sound authentic, yeah. Right, and getting off the theme again yeah. and into the incidental <laughs> music. Yeah, okay. Well, no, I'm not saying... But I'm just... 
But Murray Gold is basically doing the same thing that John Debney did, which yeah. is scoring it, scoring it as sort of neoclassical incidental music. Mm-hmm. And it works brilliantly. And what he does, it, the first year he did it all from samples. Yeah. And then and they actually brought in the you can tell, yeah. 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 And then he brings in the orchestra for the second year. I think he does a great job with that first year, and some of that mm. music's gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, you can tell. Rose, I have a bit of a problem with the soundtrack on that. It's just the the music itself is fine, but it just the way it's realised, it sounds very well synthetic. It just doesn't sound. Well, this is kind of where Murray Gold differs from anybody who's gone before him mm-hmm. is that John Debney is basically doing just that sort of neoclassical thing yeah. with an orchestra. Whereas Murray Gold, perhaps because he's using the samples in that first year, but he also carries this on. So even as recently as Into the Dalek, yeah. he's using a lot of electronic the, sounds. Yeah, yeah. I noticed some analogue synth coming into the... And it comes and goes throughout his entire mm, period. Mm. In human nature, there's quite a lot of sort of acoustic music in human nature. Yeah. Same themes, because in modern television, what you do is you write a series of themes and you use them at various, st- various stages, re-instrumentized mm. for yeah. different episodes or different moods and different tones. And so he takes, what you do is you have a palette of melodies and a palette of sounds and you mix and match according to what you need on screen. And he comes up with a brilliant combination. and it, But the genius of what Murray Gold does, and I think most people's problem with Murray Gold is mainly because they watch the episode so many times, so they hear these same themes over and over mm. again, rather than that there's anything inherently wrong in the themes themselves. But the brilliance of what he does is working out which of each palette to use at any one moment. This is yeah. the thing. I, Anybody I mean, else could take exactly the same sounds yeah. and exactly the same melodies yeah. and make a mess of it's it. It's actually a criticism I have. It's not so much a criticism, but a frustration I have with modern music, modern contemporary music, is that we now have the technology to make whatever sound we want, whatever instrument we want. And and his brilliance is that he applies whatever is needed for that particular piece with <clears throat> a certain amount of taste mm. and subtlety and, and just just being appropriate subtlety when it's required yep and you know and i tell you the, the one thing he has done that no one else required. exactly i was going to say the human voice no one's oh, used yeah. the human mm-hmm. voice before yeah. and used oh my god it's so spot on yeah. i mean thankfully as you you sort of inferred mark you know from rose onwards he's kind of got better and better yeah and and I always go on about that piece at the start of Rose. The yeah, that does stick in memory. That's yeah. the nearest thing we've got to Kef McCulloch-esque yeah. stuff. Mm. But again, it's, stick that next to Kef McCulloch and it's miles <laughs> better. Yeah, it's, Sorry, it's, Kef. it sounds really harsh on Kef um, because it wasn't just him, I think... Mm. They obviously had a certain amount of equipment stuck in front of them, and that. If you actually listen to Kef McCusick's, Kef McCusick's, <laughs> Kef McCulloch's music in his bands, yes, it's actually rather good. Mm. I can imagine it, and is. it's so different from in Doctor fact, Who. In fact, you could a criticism you could lay against it is it's trying to do a lot of things. You hear a lot of different instruments trying to do yeah. lots of things, and they don't gel. It, no. they, well, this is another thing Murray Gold did because he does that John Williams thing where. You have a melody over the top that has all the complication in it. So the music that goes underneath 
unlike with a lot of the stuff in the 80s and the 70s where you know because they were using this sort of chamber sound they didn't really get this but Murray Gold, a lot of his music in the background is very simple. Mm. But that's very effective because you mm. don't want to overcomplicate things. But he also has this brilliant understanding of when to complicate things. Yeah, and, and there's, the, there's the intelligence, I suppose. And also, you know, he applies the John Williams trick of having a theme for each character. Yeah. To the point where Martha's theme... Mm-hmm. Is the best thing about her. It's the most interesting. It's the most interesting thing about her character. (laughs) (laughs) But it is. It is. It's slinky, and it's kind of. And when it first came in, I thought, oh, she's going to be brilliant. And that all came from that musical theme where I just thought, oh, she's. But it didn't suit her because she wasn't like that. Yeah, it's a little bit sultry, and it's a little. Well, I like Freeman Ragman, so. I like up yours. Yeah, it's the character, not the actress. Exactly. All right. Okay. You know, she wasn't the best. Maybe no, she she. It was always going to be a tough act, wasn't it? Yeah, I've said this again and yeah. again. I don't think she was helped. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. No, and then then you get Donna's theme, which is um yeah. But then, yeah, well, Donna's theme is not actually a million miles away from Martha's theme. No, they both kind of have that sort of slightly jazzy. Yeah, sound. kind of Henry Henry Mancini. Sort yeah, of, mm. yeah. Two things about Murray Gold. Then one, there's a world of difference between things like that and say the cello music in. The Satan Pit, yeah. and you know things like Silence in the Library, and the the, the girl in the fireplace. Mm. So his music goes through such a wide range of different styles. People say, "Why is one guy doing all the music?" Hell, you stick on two or three tracks by Murray Gold mm. and see just how wide his you know his, his talent is. Yeah, you don't need anybody else. That doing music it. in the Satan Pit when. When he's going uh, down the pit. Not just that, but when... Is it... Uh, Suki? Su- no. The Suki. girl in the first episode. Yeah, when she's killed. floating off into yeah, space. Yeah. Oh, God. It's just... Yeah. Yeah, really yeah. affecting. Again, that same thing with the um, Delta situation, though, with um, Daleks in Manhattan. Well, I was going to bring that up. That was again, the second of my two points. Yeah, the yeah. diegetic music, the music that's... Uh, music on screen as well as off screen. Mm. It, Daleks in Manhattan and Voyage of the Damned, the song in the liner yeah. at the start. And it's even part things. Of fiction. Yeah, music that's part of the fiction. And even stuff like Song for Ten. Mm. Yeah. Bad. Stop doing diegetic and pop music, Murray. Well, it doesn't suit you. Or farm it out. Yeah. Like somebody external yeah. to it. Yeah. Because that's what they did with um, Foxes. Yeah, uh, I don't. Murray Gold didn't have anything to do with that, did he? I don't think. I don't know. Well, could I be wrong? Good. I don't know. I don't think he did. I think somebody else orchestrated it. Mm. I could be wrong, but I mean, he got. He was it actually featured in the series, the Neil Hannon version of? No, somebody no, else sang it, and they, they got should Neil have got yeah. Neil Hannon, Joey mm. Talbot to just yeah. do that. Yeah, why not? So yeah, just hand it over, and, and just to mm. bring something fresh in, it, it helps everyone. Didn't then. Harry Potter get um, Jarvis Cocker in to do? Uh... Yeah. A track. Yeah. I seem to remember. No, I don't remember that. Yeah. And Murray Girls music is 10 years old now, but it has moved on. Yeah. A lot of those themes in series one, perhaps because of the way they were written, all being samples and stuff, mm. were quite simple. And now his music, I don't think it's necessarily become more complicated, but he's doing, he's doing that thing where... 
or it seems to me he's doing that thing where you choose things that deliberately don't go together and find ways to fit them together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? What they could, what they didn't really do in season nine, when they still use the electronic music, but we're also using the chamber orchestra, and they and it doesn't gel together very well at all. But Murray Gold now is using lots of different. What I said about his palettes. He's because perhaps he's been doing it for ten years. He's now using sort of further edges of his palette. Isn't that echoing uh, the change over to Stephen Moffat to a degree as well? Because he likes to mix things up in, in the way he yeah delivers oh, the stories. So absolutely, because kind of Murray Gold was already doing that in the Stephen Moffat stories yeah. for Russell T Davis, mm-hmm. and now it's just that he's doing that more often. Yeah, and so and um, it's a bit less about the melodies now as mm-hmm. well. Now it seems to be more about the harmonies than the melodies, mm, mm. about the chord progressions more than it is the melodies. But the melodies, he still writes beautiful melodies to suit. The big difference is that he steers the emotions of the viewer as well with that, with that music, which you know wasn't happening before when it was just stabs and, and punctuation. It was, it was that was all about punctuating the story and and saying this is it. this is a scary moment. This is this moment. This is something else. But now he can literally. I guess guide the viewer through yeah. and, and probably well, give I've depth. seen some people complain about that they don't want Murray Gold telling them when to uh, feel emotional they want mm. but to that's, get that through the acting but, but that's know. part of what music does mm. if you look at the Star Wars films mm. do yeah, these absolutely. people make the same complaints about the Star no, Wars no, films know, because that's what John Williams does yeah the, again, because Murray because the one thing we can say about Murray Gold is he rips off John Williams. Oh, big stuff. And, and also there's a... I, I think we're very lucky. It's kind of, kind of a mixture of John Williams and John Barry, who are two of my favourite composers. And Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. Yeah. Might as well go for the best. Yeah, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. <laughs> and he does steal. There's no doubt about it. I chose uh, my words a bit more carefully, JR. So uh, well, if you are listening, Mr Gold, uh, please send all your legal stuff to JR Southall. He's been doing it for 10 years. It's it's not a complaint. People have been doing this since the dawn of time and John Williams does it himself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that suits modern Doctor Who because modern Doctor Who is competing with Star Wars Mm -hmm. uh, on a television budget, admittedly, but is competing now with Star Wars, Mm -hmm. whereas back in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't. No. So, of course, the musical palette has to compete with mm-hmm. it as well. And it's appropriate. And if That's why they can put it on a big screen now, as we have had a few times in the last few years. And it, it works. It works in that format. It does, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to... This thing of um, creating things for characters, you know, going back to what I said about the Zoe's theme, for him to somebody to apply and get this theme together for each of those characters and see how it... How it works, and whether it adds a kind of a, a dimension to the character that which wasn't necessarily there, mm. which I think it does with Rose's theme as well, mm. because much as I think Billy Piper was great as Rose, I don't think that was necessarily the most successful part of her character, and yet Murray Gold fishes it out. Yeah. Yeah. Right, guys, I think we've come to the end of it. Really, conclusions. I bloody love Doctor Rumi. <laughs> <laughs> Conclusions in terms of the music, there, Mark. I mean, I, I've sort of dominated yeah, this, well, but well, as I always do, I don't know. But I mean, I, I'm not saying choose your favourite bit, and I think we've all agreed that probably Murray Gold is 
the most successful bit. Yeah, certainly in terms of scoring, I think he's you know he's done an amazing job. But overall, I mean, my conclusions have been obvious throughout, really. But overall, what's your feeling about the music in Doctor Who? I think it's um, it's something that can really evoke memories, you know, because we're all of a certain age. We were watching back in the 70s and 80s and just hearing some of these tracks on the soundtrack takes you right back to that moment. So there's something in there that really works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even if they didn't, they weren't always perfect. By any well, those Dudley Simpson ones, like I said, they're pretty forgettable. Mm. But actually, you put one on and it evokes a time and a place yeah, because they're unique. The way you used that sort of chamber orchestra size, mm. but not with the chamber orchestra instruments. Yeah. You've never heard that anywhere except on Doctor Who and Blake mm. 7. Mm. Simon? Yeah, I mean, each of these eras is very much of its time. I was thinking about my favourite tracks from each of the um, decades. 60s, I'd probably go for the uh, Propaganda Machine. There's that silly bit of music that's like... Crotons. Oh, God. No, is it Macroterra? Oh, Macroterra, yeah. Oh, Macroterra, yeah. Yeah. You know, I just think we're so of its time, and and it's quirky. It's like a prototype for um, the theme tune for, um, what's the kid called who's driving the car in the first turn episode? Oh, that's dreadful, I know, though. it's awful. <laughs> that's that and the yeah. music in Kinder for the TSS machine. Ooh. Oh, apologies Those... to Andrew Smith, uh, K9. Uh, oh. When he's in the, is it K9 on patrol or something? Or K9, it's in full actually, circle. Yeah, in yeah, full yeah. circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, um, but, yeah, no, that's my favourite in the 60s. In the 70s, mm. again, I'd say Caesar Doom. I just thought that was... Stunning. Yeah. Better than Terror of the Zygons. Terror yeah, of the Zygons yeah. is the one that's very nice. Out. Yeah, that's my that's my favourite Terror of the Zygons. Seeds of Doom is one my pricked up my ears. Um eighties I'd have to go probably go five doctors. Mm. As always. Mm. And then um well there's nothing in the nineties, is there? Well modern day then. And then it's modern day, yeah, and I'd say I'm I'm the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Only Murray Gold <laughs> can write a doctor's theme in seven four times. Yeah. Just great. First time you hear that, you just think, "Wow, that is!" It just encapsulates his character so well. Even if yeah. you don't know about music, the way it starts back into the melody before yeah. the first melody yeah. is finished, you realise something weird's going mm. on, and you can't quite work out what it is. Mm. And it's so appropriate for the Doctor because yeah. it's that little twist of eccentricity that you can't even tell what it is, but mm-hmm. you know that it's something odd. Yeah. Oh, it's it's very stirring and it's um, mm. it's got grandeur, it's got depth, and like you say, it doesn't necessarily do what you expect of it, and um, it's it's almost up there with the main theme, <laughs> possibly the James Bond theme. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's trailer music as well. Mm. Well, we, in fact, they made a really odd decision to use it on the next time trailers at the end of Series 8. Yeah, Why? I noticed that. Am I right in saying that Doomsday's been used quite a lot on other programmes? I'm fairly sure I've heard it on other programmes. Mm. I don't know, that would be a bit odd. It would be a bit odd. Mm. Maybe yeah. because it was so influential. Mm. Mm. That's think, another great piece of music. Though. 60s wise, uh, Space Adventure, I think it's just... <laughs> It's just one of those. Yeah, it is. It's just one of those things you think, "Wow!" But it, it just it just clicks in your brain. You think, "Oh yeah, yeah, fantastic." Yeah. Yeah. So that one, seventies. Uh, I've got to agree. Zygons is great. City of Death. I know it's a bit of a, a 
pinch, but I do like. To hey, do if you're gonna pinch, like I yeah, say, it works. Yeah. I Doctor Who. Look, what is I don't know the seeds of doom. It's Day of the Triffids meets mm-hmm. the thing from another world yeah. meets King Kong. Yeah. What is I don't know. Pyramids of Mars. All these stories. If they're pinching, why shouldn't the music pinch? Mm-hmm. Doctor Who's a TV series that is like a magpie. Taking ideas from here, there and everywhere. And as long as it regurgitates them into the character of the series so that Frankenstein feels of a tone with she feels of a tone with the thing from another world, mm-hmm. then why not? And yeah. the music's the same thing. If Dudley Simpson's going to rip off Somebody like Gershwin, yeah. as long as he makes it sound like Doctor Who music, yeah. who cares? Eighties. Mm. That was harder, I think. Uh, I mean, Earthshock is very memorable. Not necessarily the best score, uh, but it definitely sticks. That march definitely sticks in your brain. Um, I don't know. I think. Um, probably just Legopolis, just because it is that pivotal story and the whole thing right the way through you get that sort of somber you know to coin a phrase shit's gonna get real and it's just all the way through it's kind of building up to that point and uh yeah that's uh, it's sticks with me that one i think my eighties one would be mark of the rani mm. yeah um, it's a good choice yeah it's the only one that actually feels like music yeah really yeah. i mean even some of the no, some of the latest stuff does more so than some of the earlier stuff, but that's the one that actually feels like it's a proper score. Seventies, mm. probably. Did, oh, sorry. Did you say Mark of the Rani or Time of the Rani? Mark of the Rani. Ah, you weren't choosing Time of the Rani. No, I wasn't choosing Time of the Rani. Twit. Seventies. <laughs> I don't know. City of Death or Terror of the Yeah. I don't know, boring, but 60s. Although, you know, hat tip to Malcolm Clark for Sea Devils. Um, that didn't is... take place in the 60s. No, no, but going back to the 70s, you know, you're saying, oh, it's got to be one of those two. But yeah, that's, it's quirky. It's really making full use of what limited instruments they had. And yeah, it's, it's another one. You know, as soon as you hear it, you think, right, transported straight back to watching that episode. But I think that's one of the ones that stands up away from the pictures. You can listen to that as a piece of music, whereas some of them you can't. About the modern day, Mark, a favourite Murray Gold theme? Uh, Simon Stolmine, really, I think it's got to be. Yeah. The other one that I really like is Rose's theme. Yeah. But then I've always been a sucker for... My favourite bit in Star Wars is Princess Leia's theme. Mm. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yeah, that's good. I really like Amy's theme, actually, as well. That's quite similar in that it's less of a quirky upbeat one, isn't it? If mm, I remember yeah, rightly, it's quite subtle. And it's, yeah, yeah, I thought it was, yeah. It's a lovely key change, isn't it? But then the music from the the music from the Stephen Moffat in Russell T Davis episodes mm. are all great as well. Mm. I've got the season eight, series eight box set sat on my shelf, and I just through various reasons I haven't watched it. So it's been a while since I've actually seen the episodes and I'm really struggling to remember a Twelfth Doctor theme. Well, that's because they're all really subtle. Mm. Mm. Murray Gold said there is one, but I don't think it's necessarily what you'd expect it to be. No. Just one final thing. 
it was interesting going through that CD. Obviously, it's uh, uh, every now and again you'll get the next version of the theme coming. Mm -hmm. I hadn't noticed before that for the uh, season eighteen one, when it comes in, it goes up a semitone. Yeah, in key. Yeah, it gives the impression of more. I suppose velocity, kind of. I suppose they mm. they were trying to make it a bit more zippy. Yeah. Yeah. No, not that sort of zippy bundle. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you just didn't know what the original key was. I once did a cover version of something years and years and years ago. Oh, Lee will tell you this because he played on it. And it was supposed to <laughs> oh, be... Oh, God. Does this still exist? Yeah. And it was supposed to be on a capo. A great Easter but I hadn't realised. So I'd just um, record the music without transposing it up to where the capo was. Mm -hmm. So actually I'd recorded it in the wrong key. You just reminded me, I can't remember who it was now. I think it was during the election they showed a photo of a politician holding a guitar. Boris, Boris. Boris Johnson. Oh, of course, it had to be. Holding and a what? Guitar. Oh, a guitar. And there's got a capo on it and he's got his fingers on the wrong side of the capo. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, dear. Well, I think that brings it to an end then. Yeah. We've still got the politics in there, didn't we? Yeah. Speaking of K9, like you were a few minutes ago, though, yeah. next week you, Lee and I... We'll be sitting down to watch K9 and Company and talk about it. Ah, oh, we didn't even mention that in the 80s. That's well, one of the most outstanding pieces of music in the entire of Doctor Who. I said we weren't talking about the theme tunes. Wow. <laughs> K9! Do, do. Until then, though, I was JR. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs>